Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from Dracula, made in 1979. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. It's good to have you here for this episode. Before I start talking about Dracula, I want to address a review posted on Apple Podcasts by Brad Dalton because I'm not able to reply to it online. It said, quote, I appreciate the musical excerpts, but the commentary is painfully bad. If you want to listen to someone who obviously knows nothing about music give you his Williams's music could have been better assessments, listen. It makes me cringe. End quote. Now, I don't mind the review, and certainly Brad Dalton has the right to his own opinion, but I did mention in the first episode that I am not a fully trained musician. In fact, I have only taken two semesters of community college piano class, so I know how to read music, can play piano marginally well, and can at least understand what I read about music theory. The whole point of me taking those classes was to be able to understand certain discussions about John Williams' music and music in general. So, I like to think that I know something about music, though definitely not enough to call myself an expert. And I do recall that when I express an opinion about a piece of music, either positively or negatively, I tend to follow it up with a coherent reason. If Mr. Dalton is listening, I hope you will send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com with more specific examples where my commentary makes you cringe. It can help me understand how to improve the podcast as a whole. So with that, let's begin our discussion of Dracula. John Williams was spending the majority of his time in England thanks to the work he was putting in on four of his last six films in 1977 and 1978. And it's a good thing that he enjoyed England because the work was steady. At this time, his two oldest children were college students in Southern California. His youngest son, Joseph, was 17 years old and still in high school. I have heard an interview that Joseph Williams gave in which he said he spent a lot of time living in London as a kid and he really enjoyed it. It's good to hear that he didn't mind being shuttled back and forth between London and Los Angeles. I'm sure his father had the resources to make sure he had private tutors or was able to put him into good schools wherever he was. And young Joseph was probably getting a great music education watching his father at work. When Universal wanted to make another big-budget film about Dracula, the studio turned to the recent Broadway play revival for its leading man. Frank Langella might be known to most of you as a film actor, but he made his name starring on Broadway, winning a Tony in an Edward Albee play in 1975 before his Tony-nominated performance as Dracula in 1977. Dracula's adversary is the vampire hunter Van Helsing, played in the film by the great Laurence Olivier. In 1978, Olivier played a Nazi hunter in The Boys from Brazil, so perhaps Olivier was getting typecast here, but it adds some great star power to the film. John Badham was chosen to direct after his first major feature, Saturday Night Fever, blasted John Travolta into superstardom. Given that the tone of the Dracula movie was leaning away from the inherent horror aspects of the Dracula story, 
it's not surprising that directors who had been working in horror movies were not seriously courted for this movie. At the time, John Williams was Universal's top composer. Though there's never been any indication that he was under contract with Universal after his TV contract ended in the 1960s, Williams always had some allegiance to Universal and had an office on the studio lot. So when word got out that Universal was making another Dracula film, the movie's producers didn't hesitate to contact John Williams. The producers were brothers Marvin and Walter Mirisch. Marvin was mostly the silent partner in the Mirisch company, similar to Bob Weinstein's role in the movie production company Miramax. It was Walter Mirisch who was the face of the Mirisch brothers' work in Hollywood, helping bring three Oscar-winning Best Pictures to the screen in the 1960s. If you've been following this journey through John Williams' career, you know that Walter Mirisch was the guiding force behind four previous films that featured a John Williams score, Hawaii, Fitzwillie, Fiddler on the Roof, and Midway. And it should also be noted that John Williams worked as an arranger on The Apartment in 1960, which was produced by Walter Mirisch. The thing that truly convinced Williams to take on Dracula's score was not so much Mirisch's involvement, but the British-based production. Filming took place at the famous Shepperton Studios just outside London, where Star Wars and Superman were filmed. And as a side note, Ridley Scott's Alien, which would merge the horror genre with the new outer space film craze that year, was also being filmed in the same studio lot around the same time. With Dracula's production based in the London area, why not record the score in London as well? Williams was already in London when Mirish and Badham started discussing composers for Dracula, and who better to write music for a famous character than the man who was currently working on the score for another famous character, Superman. Because Williams was working with the London Symphony Orchestra at the time he agreed to work on Dracula, he didn't have to work hard to secure their services a few months later. And here's a little tidbit about Williams' work around this time that you might not know. I certainly didn't know it until doing research for this episode, and I found it fascinating. Williams had agreed to reunite with his Poseidon Adventure director, Ronald Neem, for the 1979 disaster film, Meteor. Everything was a go for Williams to work on the score in early 1979, but delays on the post-production meant Williams had to bow out. Nothing would be ready for him until the summer, when he would be starting on Steven Spielberg's comedy, 1941. With his calendar empty after stepping away from Meteor, it made it easier for Williams to squeeze in some time to write music for Dracula. I want to give thanks to the 2018 release of the Dracula score and Mike Mattesino's historical rundown of the production for that precious nugget of information. And I also learned that Williams had never seen a vampire film in his life before watching the first cut of Dracula, at least according to John Badham's recollection. Naturally, that helps Williams enter the project without any knowledge, conscious or subconscious, about music written for Dracula previously. John Williams was a blank slate. I'm going to give away a few plot points, so beware, but I definitely have to say that Frank Langella does very well as Dracula here. He is never out to scare the audience, even though he does things that would fit in a horror film. As Langella said in an interview around the time of the film's release, Dracula has been without love for a long time, and he suddenly finds it when he arrives in London. His only goal is to make his intended bride immortal like him. 
That woman is played by Kate Nelligan, who is mostly known to me for her work in 1991's The Prince of Tides. Dracula was her second film after lots of TV work, and the Canadian-born Nelligan did a pretty good English accent, helped by her many years of study in England. This love story was like catnip to Williams. Remember that he chose more romanticized music for The Fury, waiting until the final 30 minutes to dip into horror music writing. So, noting that this Dracula was set primarily as a love story, he wrote a melody that could be used for swooning and for screaming. He chose the former tone in the opening titles of the movie, though he definitely let us know that this love story would have some very grim repercussions. Right away, I felt like I was in 19th century England. The music alone set the tone, though shortly we would feel like we belonged in the era thanks to the wonderful set design. I do want to mention the cinematography very quickly, though. If you saw it in the theater in 1979, you saw lots of vibrant colors. I have only seen it on home video, and the print is almost completely devoid of color. Director John Badham wanted to drain almost all color out of the film, but Universal wanted to showcase the opulent sets in their colorful glory. And so they decided to release the film in color, but John Badham said, when it comes out on home video, I'm going to desaturate it. Just as this episode is being released, a Blu-ray of the film is bringing back the original color to home video. I don't know if I want to see it that way, though. I think toning down the color, as Badham had intended, works better to make the film darker and more mysterious. So this main theme really has that yearning quality that I loved in the composition of the main theme in Star Wars, as the music leaps up the scale. Whereas that theme in Star Wars suggested heroism, this one suggests, to me at least, Dracula trying to take flight but feeling tethered or weighed down in some way. Although Williams' work with the London Symphony Orchestra highlights the amazing brass section in almost every score he's done with them, Dracula's score gives the woodwinds and strings a chance to showcase their abilities. I think those musicians in the woodwind section and the string section were happy to be at the forefront of a score by John Williams, instead of playing second fiddle, as it were, to the brass. Dracula is invited to dinner at the home of his neighbor. He is attracted to Mina, who found him unconscious in a cave after the shipwreck. Later that evening, with Mina alone in her room, Dracula makes his way to her. 
you'll hear some very creepy strings as Dracula crawls down the outside walls to Mina's window. At this point, the music on the CD releases and the music in the film differ. Here's what you hear on the CD as Mina gives in to Dracula and unbuttons her gown. It's okay, but not as good as what plays in the film.
strings make it so much more passionate, taking away the fear Mina felt for a more romantic desire for the man who has entered her room. Now, unfortunately, Mina doesn't turn out to be the vampire that Dracula wanted. While Mina is off killing random people, Dracula turns his attentions to Lucy, played by Kate Nelligan. So we've reached the epic moment in the film when John Williams' music needed to keep the visuals grounded in semi-reality. Dracula comes to visit Lucy in her room to tell her that she will be flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. And she never once shows a sign of fright. It goes into probably the only time you'll see a love scene in a Dracula film. And now Dracula digs into Lucy's neck, which is about as close to sex as the undead can get. The visuals and the music take a striking turn here. It's all extremely passionate, and again, there's never a sense of horror. Lucy and Dracula are shown in red silhouette with frequent shots of a bat flying across the screen. Thank you. 
Lucy returns the favor by drinking from Dracula, and the two are now connected eternally. Van Helsing has long suspected that Dracula is a vampire, and it is confirmed when Dracula comes to his room to kill the vampire hunter. Van Helsing holds out a bunch of garlic to scare Dracula, but Dracula seems to get the upper hand as he hypnotizes Van Helsing. Note how the main theme takes over briefly before Van Helsing pulls out a crucifix to scare Dracula away.
My favorite musical moment in the film comes when Van Helsing exhumes Mina's body and proceeds to cut out her heart to sever her connection to the undead. Williams presents an eight-note repeating motif. Well, I guess it's more of an ostinato that suggests a race against time for both sides. It starts out on a clarinet. Van Helsing is racing against time to save his daughter's soul, while Lucy, pretending to be healed from Dracula's kiss, runs away from the house in a race against time to warn Dracula. The ostinato returns, this time much faster. Many people point to the film's chase scene as the musical highlight, and probably that's because this is where the brass section gets to stretch its legs. Dracula is taking Lucy to Romania with him on his ship, and both are fast asleep in a box on a horse-drawn carriage bound for the docks. Van Helsing and others are hot on the trail in a car. Again, the strings and woodwinds take center stage here, keeping up with the pace of the scene. Thank you. 
The finale has Jonathan Harker, Lucy's fiancé, get the upper hand on Dracula by hoisting the vampire from the bowels of the ship into the daylight. The entire London Symphony Orchestra, strings, woodwind, brass, percussion, are all out to play for Dracula's demise. Lucy seems to return to normal, or is she? And then we see Dracula's cape fly away. We don't see an actual body inside the cape, but we hear a wolf's howl, suggesting that Dracula is off to Romania as the film reaches the end. The oboe gives us a tender rendition of the main theme before the strings take over.
What a way to end the film. Not somber to mourn the supposed death of Dracula, but upbeat to suggest he has lived to torment the living for another thousand years. I wish there had been a sequel to this, as the final shots suggest there should be. Perhaps Walter Mirisch and others talked of a sequel, but it never happened. Something else that never happened was another Walter Mirisch film with the John Williams score. Mirisch would produce just one more theatrical film, the 1983 flop Romantic Comedy. I doubt Mirisch even thought to ask Williams to take on that film. So, Dracula ended another very lucrative collaboration for John Williams. Dracula didn't do well at the box office, and everything I've read pins the blame on the film Love at First Sight, a comedy about Dracula that came out three months before Dracula in 1979. If audiences can go see two disaster films in 1974, then they could certainly handle more than one Dracula movie, right? When in fact, there was another Dracula film released that same year, the German-language Nosferatu, which is a very dark and scary tale of the Dracula story. No aspects of the film were recognized come award season, and that's one reason why the movie got very little attention after 1979. Frank Langella has enjoyed a career resurgence of late, thanks to his Oscar-nominated performance as Richard Nixon in Frost Nixon in 2008, which was a recreation of his Tony Award-winning performance. So let's wrap up this episode of The Baton and get ourselves ready for the next William Spielberg collaboration. And it's one that still has me wondering if Spielberg did it as a joke, or if he really thought he was making a good movie. It's 1941, and I'm anxious to explore the score and the film. In the time between episodes, I invite you to let me know what you think of what you've been hearing, write a review on Apple Podcasts, submit a comment on the Podbean app, and or send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. I love reading comments, especially in the downtime between working on each episode, so keep them coming. Thanks for listening today. Until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>